I'm ready. If everybody could come in and find your seat, find your chair, and get out your Bible and turn to the beginning, Genesis chapter 1. Come in and you can either look up on your device, uh, Genesis 1 ESV, or open your Bible. And our scripture reading is going to be the whole chapter this morning. Uh, So if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word together. Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the, the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse, and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening And there was morning the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which there is is their seed each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons, and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, and the lesser light to rule the night, and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, Let the water swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures, and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm, according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, 
Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw that, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Hear God's word to you. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Thank you, Josiah, for doing really good work there with Genesis chapter 1. This is such an amazing portion of Scripture. What an amazing chapter to read and consider how God created the universe. This was written by Moses maybe 3,500 years ago, and we need to think of it as the opening chapter to the book of Genesis, the opening chapter to the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, the books of Moses, and the first chapter of the Hebrew Bible and the Christian Bible. So this is God's account of the beginning. It's a, in many ways, a literary masterpiece. It's complex, it's comprehensive, it's beautiful, it's powerful, and it's true. God's word is true. So before we jump into the deep end of the pool and try to understand all the complexities and what this, what this chapter of the Bible is saying to us, I do want to consider for a moment just the audience, the original audience that would have heard or read um, these chapters of Scripture. So there once was a people surrounded by a culture very different from them. They had different values, they had different gods, they had different morals, and they had different histories. They had divergent histories. They, they had been among the, this other people for over 400 years enslaved by them. And by God's miraculous power, this, this group of people was going to leave the culture where they had been for 400 years. They're going to be delivered by signs and wonders. And then they're going to travel back to a land where they had been centuries before. But they're going to travel to this, this land again, which is filled with people that think differently, worship different gods, have different morals, and point to different things in their history. They've had their own accounts of the history of the world. So how would Israel resist becoming like the nation that they're leaving and resist becoming like the nation where they are going? How will they do that? How, how can they maintain their distinctiveness? How can they pass down their beliefs and their history and what they know of the world to their children? How can they know in the end what's true? How can they present their view of the world to others? Well, Moses, his answer is to begin with where they came from. Not where they came from, from Egypt back to the promised land. No, where they came from, where everything came from. That's Moses' solution to prepare them. The beginning of their preparation for going back into Canaan is to know how was the world created. He doesn't begin with Joseph. 
and move back to Abraham and then back to Noah and then back to Adam. No, he begins at the very beginning. He goes right to the beginning of the whole world. And so in order to know who we are or how we engage with the culture around us, I submit that we need to know how we got here and what our purpose is. And Moses doesn't begin just with Israel and his 12 sons. He goes to the very beginning of creation. And so this message that might have first been read by the Israelites as they're getting ready to travel back to the promised land, as Moses wrote it in the 1500s BC or so, was not just for them. You see, this this message from Genesis 1 is also a message for us, and it will help us in many of the same ways. Now, some of the things that Moses is going to do in this chapter are going to answer specific questions that the Israelites might have had about the culture of Egypt that they're leaving and the cultures in Canaan to which they're about to go and possess. So there will be clues in the text that, that show us that God is actually, he's actually undermining the, the faith of those nations and bolstering the faith of the Israelites. So that's, that's neat. But it's also true that what God says here will help us as we, as we engage our own culture. So imagine that we are in the midst of a land that thinks differently from us. Imagine that we're in a land that has different gods or no God. Imagine living in a land that has different beliefs or different morals, has a different set of moral values. There are many ways we can engage that culture, but I submit to us this morning that one of the ways we can engage with that culture is going back to the beginning. So Genesis helped prepare Israel to stand against the pagan worldviews around them, and I really believe that Genesis can also help us engage uh, the atheistic and pagan world around us. Uh, Honestly, I felt a lot of pressure for this sermon. We've been talking about it among the elders for a long time, thinking how can we, you know, go through Genesis and talk about the six days of creation, and there's some fun things in the text as we're going to see, but I'm just going to be honest. There's there's a lot of things I'm not going to answer. You probably have questions that are on the tip of your tongue right now or at the front of your mind, and you're thinking, is John going to answer this? Probably not. Like, I'm going to do my best. But we're all going to end up, we all have questions. I have questions about the beginning of the world that Genesis doesn't answer. We might have scientific or historical or astronomy questions that we'd love to answer. And I'm aware that, that you know, some of you are thinking, the kids are like, dinosaurs. I just want to hear about the dinosaurs. <laughs> or about the age of the universe. Or about how long did Adam and Eve live before they sinned? Interesting things which we kind of ask. What was it like in the garden? How did, what was it like for Adam and Eve to live over 900 years? Like these are things that, that are fascinating to us. So I'm, I'm just going to try to set the bar a little bit lower. And I'm trying to attempt to answer some of the ways we reconcile the Bible with science. But my main goal and the goal that I hope we all have as we approach God's word is what does the Bible want us to know from this scripture? Like, that's the question we should be asking. What does, what does God want us to know as we come to Genesis chapter 1? What did Moses want us to know when he wrote it? So that's, that's my goal this morning, is just to think about that specifically. And we'll try to answer some of the other things. But my, I have three points. God created all that is by his word, number one. Number two, God created all that is in six days. And finally, God's good creation has mankind as a focal point. Let's pray together. Oh God, we do have many questions as we think about science and the Bible, as we think about history in the Bible and even just how to interpret the Bible itself. And we pray for the help of the Holy Spirit this morning, that you would open our eyes, that you would open our eyes with wisdom from above, that you'd open our eyes to understand what your scriptures mean, 
that you'd open our eyes to the purpose for which you told us these things. And God, we are aware that we're in a culture that um, really battles this very issue. It seems like at times so much of the cultural battle is around the beginning and where we came from and what that means. So we pray for your grace. We pray for your help. We pray for the power of the Holy Spirit to be upon us. So specifically, Lord, this morning I pray for high school and college students who are, who are perhaps encountering um, classes and topics and questions that they've not answered before. And Lord, I pray that their faith in your word would not be shaken. Would you strengthen them to, to have faith in what your word says and to pray for wisdom to know how those things work together. I pray for Christians in academia and the workplace and in government who are attempting to maintain their Christian worldview in the face of so much opposition. Lord, would you help them to speak clearly and powerfully in ways that support the truth of your word and also a good policy and good science and good history. And Lord, I pray for us that you would build our own faith as we encounter your explanation for the beginning of all things. Lord, would you strengthen us this morning as we think about how you existed before all that is came to be and how you're bringing everything into existence and holding everything by the word of your power for your glory and your purposes and our communion with you. So, Lord, we entrust ourselves to you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, point number one, God created all that is by his word. Now, Daniel started off last week in verses one and two saying, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we discussed that heavens and earth are really, that's a phrase that encapsulates all the things that have been made. Now, as we go farther in our chapter, we're going to realize he's going to use heavens in a specific way and earth in a specific way. But in chapter, in verse 1, when you see the heavens and the earth, Moses is intending to say all that has been created, God created. He created all that is. It's a comprehensive statement, and it's going to get fleshed out over the next six days or 30 or so verses in our Bible. But when we get to verse 3, we begin to see God's specific acts in creation. If you look at verse 3, it begins, And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God said. That's how God created he spoke, and things came into existence. Now, we're eventually going to see um, what he created on each of the six days. But first, we should just focus a minute on the patterns of what we're going to see. Now, when Josiah read our passage this morning, you, you were noticing the patterns. You were hearing, oh, that got repeated, that got repeated. Um, and and it's, it's all through chapter one, all these literary devices. And and some scholars want to say that because Genesis 1 through 3 or even 1 through 11, are, that because we see all this literary stuff happening, that therefore they're mythological or typological. That is, that's not how it reads. It reads as narrative history. But it reads as narrative history that was written with style and purpose and meaning. So this isn't Hebrew poetry at its basic core. Um, this does not mean that it was not written with a significant amount of form and purpose. Moses clearly has put an amazing amount of, of literary devices into this first chapter. So first, let's notice this, the sevens. The sevens are all over the place in chapter one. Now, obviously, we saw the seven days, but unless you read Hebrew or read people that read Hebrew... You might not know that there are seven Hebrew words in verse 1. There are two lines of seven words in verse 2. 
There are five lines of seven words in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, which is kind of the ending of this particular section of Scripture. God is mentioned 35 times, so if you know your times tables. Earth and land, earth or land, are mentioned 21 times. Sky and heaven, 21 times. And it was so, seven times. And God saw that it was good, seven times. Now, I'm just going to submit to you, that's not a mistake. It's not a mistake that this is the way Moses wrote it. What are some of the other literary patterns we see? Well, there's a pattern for each of the days. Now, not all these is exactly the same, but there's a pattern which flows pretty well through it. There is an announcement, and God said. There's the order or the command, let there be. So, and God said, we see 10 times. Let there be, we see eight times. There's a fulfillment, and it was so, seven times. There's a description, and God made this or that or the other, seven times. There's approval, and God saw that it was good, seven times. There's a divine word of naming or blessing, seven times. There's a mention of the days evening and morning, six out of seven times. There's, there is structure and form to what Moses is saying. Now, all of these patterns are interesting and worthy of study. But for right now, for this point, I just want you to think about that first thing that happens on each day. Consider the significance of the refrain, and God said. Now, we already knew from... Verse 1, that God is a creating God. But now we find out God is a speaking God. So God's a creating God, but our God is also a speaking God. Now, perhaps this feels obvious to us because we've read Genesis before or we, we know some things about the Bible, but just don't assume that that would be the case, that the God that created everything is a God who speaks. So even those in our culture who may say there's some kind of intelligence behind the universe, many of them reject that it is a God who speaks. But as Christians, we serve a God not only who can create everything that is, but a God who speaks. So verse 3, let there be light, God said. Verse 6, God said, let there be an expanse. Verse 9, God said, let there be waters under the heavens. Verse 11, God said, let the earth sprout vegetation. Verse 14, God said, let there be lights in the, uh, lights in the expanse of the heavens. Verse 20, God said, let the waters swarm with swarming things. Verse 24, let the earth bring forth creatures according to their kinds. Verse 26, let us make man in our image. God is a God who speaks. Now, obviously, this is not the way we create. Um, I can't say, let there be, and anything actually happen. Um, I tried this the other night. I, I asked one of my children, I said, make me create, I said, create me a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And she said, I I can't do that. I'm like, why not? Create out of nothing me a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. She said, I can't do that. Neither can I say, let there be, and it just happens. But when God speaks, things happen. The things that we do or make or create right? The things that we do make or create, they take a lot of thought, they take a lot of materials, they take a lot of work, and they take a lot of time. The fancier the thing is that we create, the more time it takes. Not so with the God who created all things. God speaks, and it comes to pass. This is why The psalmist says things like this in Psalm 148, praise him sun and moon, praise him all you shining stars, praise him you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens, let them praise the name of the Lord for he commanded and they were created. This is the God that we serve, the God not only that creates 
but the God who speaks. And just a great summary of, of, of a great verse for us to memorize and meditate on for this whole series from Hebrews eleven three. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. So that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. What we have, what we see, what we touch, what we hear, what we experience, were not made by things that were visible. They were created by the word of God. Now the point of this is that Elohim, God that we've spoken of, He is sovereign over all things. He is not limited in his power at all. He is not limited in his authority. He's not merely the God of this small tribe of Israel who's leaving Egypt and going into the land of Canaan again. He is Lord over all. He is the God who speaks. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Friends, God spoke and created all that is. This is one of the things we need to learn from Genesis chapter 1. He created all that is by his word. Second, God created all that is in six days. Now, I came to this study for this sermon willing to let my mind be changed, right? When we, when we, when we dive in to study Scripture, we need to be willing to have our minds be changed. Maybe I, maybe I have thought about this wrongly in the past and I need to learn some new things. But I will say, having studied and read a fair amount over the last several months, I still believe clearly that Genesis 1 is communicating God created the heavens and the earth in six literal days. Unfortunately, that doesn't answer all of our questions. And there are many Christians who are trying to be faithful to the Bible who will come to a different conclusion than me. But I don't see any any compelling reason in the text of Scripture to think that day means anything other than a literal day. Now, throughout most of church history, there's been very little disagreement over this. Not until the last couple hundred years have, have the, the modern scientific theories really challenged, well, what is Genesis 1 saying? And so we do have to wrestle with that and, and work through the questions that that brings up. And there are different approaches taken by different Bible scholars on how to how to work with Genesis 1 and 2, and how does that work with science. So a couple of other approaches that maybe, maybe this is the way you think or maybe this is uh, the way you would lean. Some would approach the day as being an age, thousands or millions of years. And so each of these days is an age. We call that the day-age view. Others see there might be some gap between verse 1 and verse 2 that could be Millions or billions of years. In this view, the matter, the stuff of creation was created there in in verse 1. And then the six days are God preparing the earth in a new way for mankind. Now, there are are a lot of different variations of that view. One particular one is held by John Salehammer, an Old Testament scholar, who's written several books about it, and, and this is actually the view John Piper takes, uh, the John Selhammer's presentation of, of Genesis. It's not my view, but there are solid Christians who take different views than me. So I'm not trying to tell you you have to think just like me on this issue. Um, another view is the idea that, that the six days are merely a literary framework that Moses, the author, is using to communicate certain truths that we need to know about Uh, about creation, but not trying to give uh, a sequential order of events of what actually happened in creation. So in other words, the framework view would say, um, what's most important is that we were created, not how or when or how long it took for us to be created. And there's a lot to commend in the framework view because as we've noticed, there is a lot of structure and meaning imposed on the text that's there. Um, But I believe that not only did God 
say it in those interesting ways. He did it in those interesting ways. So I will say I'm not a scientist. Um, it's a bit too much for us to try to answer all the questions about how we, how we you know, work with God's spoken word, his special revelation in Scripture, and his works, his, you know, his general revelation in nature. I really appreciate the scientists and apologists and philosophers who pour lots of their blood, sweat, and tears in trying to understand those things. Um, But I will tell you some of the guiding principles that I work with as I approach a text like this. First, one of my principles is that God's special revelation, his spoken word, the Bible, is more authoritative and clearer than his general revelation through nature. It's clearer than his general revelation. So God's special revelation in the Bible is clearer than his general revelation in nature. Second, when a scripture passage is unclear, we interpret scripture with scripture. So we let clearer passages help us understand murkier passages. Third, and this is key for this particular issue, we should not forget the miraculous. Don't forget the miraculous when studying nature. Now, science tests what normally happens, what we might call the laws of nature. But what do scientists do with miracles? So just take Jesus turning the water into wine. What does the scientist do with that? Well, there's actually this little-known chemistry thing that could happen, you know, to turn this water into wine. Now, the scientist can't explain the water turning into wine because it was miraculous. So as we look at Genesis 1, I believe we're looking at a week of miracles. And so science is going to, we're going to do our best to try to understand, like, what can we test, know, observe, reproduce? But if you accept the miraculous, then you are accepting there are things we will not be able to understand scientifically. And finally, I just want to say our, our current scientific climate is one that often begins with the rejection of a sovereign Lord over the universe. They begin there. This was not always the case in science, but it is the most widely held view today. So as we approach answering scientific questions, we should also remember We don't start there. We don't start with there is no sovereign Lord over the universe. We start with there is a sovereign Lord over the universe. Now, in the end, there's not going to be any true disagreement between facts of what happened in creation and what the Bible says. Wayne Grudem captures this really well in his systematic theology. He says this, We should not fear to investigate scientifically the facts of the created world but should do so eagerly and with complete honesty, confident that when facts are rightly understood, they will always turn out to be consistent with God's inerrant words in Scripture. Similarly, we should approach the study of Scripture eagerly and with confidence that when rightly understood, Scripture will never contradict facts in the natural world. Stephen, as as Christians... We have a lot of freedom to study God's works. I read from Psalm 111 last last Sunday for the benediction that we delight in studying God's works. But we should know that when we rightly understand God's works and when we rightly understand God's words, there is no contradiction. I don't claim to have all that knowledge about God's works or all that knowledge about God's word, but I do have faith that God's word is true. And I do have faith that in the end, we will realize there is no final contradiction. So let's have some thoughts about uh, just kind of the structure over the days. So we've seen that there's an overarching pattern to each of the six days. Uh, but there's, there's another pattern, which I don't know if you've seen. And that is there are two sets of three days. We have days one through three. Days four through six. Days one through three are primarily about giving form 
to the creation. And days four through six are primarily about the filling of that creation with life and movement and activity. So, <clears throat> so we have days one through three. God separates light from darkness. God separates the water from the water to create the sky. God separates the water from the land. Days four through six, God puts the sun, moon, and stars in the sky. God puts um, fish and birds into the water and the air. And day six, God creates the animals and man for the land. So each of those corresponds. So day one, light, let there be light, corresponds to day four, the sun, moon, and stars. Now, I know you're thinking, objection. How could the sun, moon, and stars come after the light? We'll get there. Day two, God creates the sky and the waters in a way. And day five, we have birds and fish. Okay, so two and five go together. And finally, three and six. Day three, God creates the land and the plants. And day six, God creates animals and man. So the framework guys say, well, well see, that's, that's, that's just putting parallelism and it's making us, you know, it's, it's helping us understand why, but it's not saying what actually happened. I just, I just believe God's telling us what actually happened and why. So, we got that. So two sets of three days. Day one goes with day four, two with five, three with six. Um, as, you, as you read through that, you'll see that more and more. So we're not going to look at every verse through the passage. I can't do that. But I want to make a few observations about a few of the days. Uh, and then we'll kind of work through to some of our conclusions. Uh, so for day one, let there be light. I just want to make an observation that God created the light and the darkness. Why is that important? Well, it's important because Genesis is not presenting darkness as evil or as darkness as some force in opposition to God. Now, that would have been the view of the pagan cultures around Israel, that darkness was fighting against the light. And of course, we have images, imagery of that in the New Testament when we're talking about moral things or the spiritual realm, but not so here. Remember, this is very good. Here we have darkness and light, and the separation of those things is something that God is sovereign over. It's not a battle between light and darkness. God is sovereign over both. And one of the other things that I really like here in day one is and this is key to my interpretation of what a day is. And that is, he tells us what a day is right here. Look at verse 5. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning, one day. Now, we read it in the ESV as the first day, but actually, this is not first. This is just one. The, the next few days are going to be second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth. But actually, in Hebrew here, we have... We have evening and morning, one day. So what is evening and morning? That's a day. What is a day? It's evening and morning. Now the Hebrew day we're saying here starts in the evening at sundown and come, goes through the rest of the day till the next sundown. That's what we see here in the Genesis account of what is one day. Now this doesn't make a lot of sense if we go to the day-age theory. What is evening and morning in an age. Is the first half of it dark and the first half of it light? That doesn't make sense to me. But the, the evening and morning, the darkness and light make sense to me. In verse 2, what does it say about the creation? The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. That's evening. When does morning come? Let there be light. And there was light. There was evening and morning. One day. So to me, I just see that the scripture is telling us how we should interpret this text, that it's one day. Just let the text speak. Okay, obviously uh, the light spoken of then in day one, in my view, is not solar light. It does not come from the sun. This is one of the stumbling blocks for many to accept the six-day literal day view. However, we do have warrant to think of a time 
in history when there will be light without sun. Revelation 22.5, and night will be no more. They will need no lamp or light or sun, for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. So there will come a time in the future where there is no sun and yet there will be light. So why not at the beginning of creation when God said, let there be light, that the light came from the one who is the light. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it. So we see an explanation of what a day is, evening and morning, one day. We see light that's not solar, which is, it's challenging to us, I understand, but remember, we're in a week of miracles. What about day two? I've always found day two to be maybe the most confusing. Um, I don't know about you, but separating the waters from the waters and the firmament and what exactly is that talking about? Um, I've tried to find like, like that secret key to the interpretation that just convinces us. But I think in the end, he's creating the sky. So in the original, in the original cosmos from verse 2, there's darkness over the face of the deep. The Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So the waters are covering the earth. And there's also waters in the atmosphere. And so day 2 is God separating the clouds from the waters okay, to create the sky. Now, ESV uh, has it as the expanse. So we see different words. Expanse, heavens, King James, firmament. Uh, probably the idea in Israel's time was that there was a, a dome, like an actual like solid dome that was keeping the waters above from the waters below. But the idea here is God separated the waters above. Perhaps the cloud cover was was universal around the globe, I don't know. But he's separating the waters from the waters, creating the sky. So the best thing that way to think about heavens in this sense is the sky. Not heaven where God dwells, where God's throne is, or when we think, where do you go, where do you go when you die? Do you go to heaven? Like, that's not, what's it, that's not what's being talked about here in day two. It's the sky. It's where the birds fly. Okay, day three separating waters from the land. Now, day three gets two distinct creative acts. First, God takes the waters and he kind of gets them all together so that there's land that's visible. After all, what God is doing in these six days is preparing the land for mankind. He's preparing the earth for man. And so he has to have land. Now, this likely would remind the Israelites of something they just experienced, what might they have experienced where there was the wind of God and there was water and then there was dry ground, right? The parting of the Red Sea. So they just come through that. And here, as God describes this and God made boundaries for, for the land and the water that the water would not transgress. So they're thinking back, oh, I've, I've seen the wind of God, the spirit of God do that before. And the, 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 the idea of the creation of the land would probably have a double meaning for the Israelites because so much of the Pentateuch is about God's promise to bring them where? To the land, to the land flowing with milk and honey, to the promised land. So, that's, so they would have had that in their mind as they're reading this and hearing this. So God created the land. So not just dry ground, but the place where they're going to experience God's blessing. God created. But God doesn't stop with creating land. In day three, he also goes ahead and creates vegetation. God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruits, trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed according to their kind on the earth, and it was so. So we see two things introduced here in day three. We see the introduction of the idea of seed and the introduction of according to its kind. Day four, you've been waiting for day four because we've had light for three days, but we're, we're waiting on the sun, moon, and stars. So up until this point, creation has been about God separating things, light from darkness, water from water, water from land, and now he begins filling the things. So he starts back with day one. He fills, he fills the heavens with the sun, moon, and stars. 
So he's filling this form with life and motion. First, he starts with the luminaries in the heavens. Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate day from night. Let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. So he not only creates them, he tells them what they're for. They're not just for light, but they help with our calendar and everything, the feasts and the Sabbath and all these things are related to how we understand the sun and the moon. Now, one interesting thing in the pagan cultures in Egypt and in Canaan, um, the, the gods of the sun and the moon and the stars were very significant. They were very significant. And they, um, so in a way, Moses is saying, look, our God created the sun, the moon, and the stars. And interestingly, Moses doesn't even use the name for sun or moon because they were deified. He just says, the greater light, the lesser light. Like God created these things and they are under his sovereign rule. And the stars, which would have been used for all kinds of, you know, um, you know uh, evil purposes of telling what's going to happen, you know, astrology. God just mentions them, animate the stars. Like I'm over all of creation. They barely get a mention. Uh, verse 5, he fills the, the, the waters and the sky. Um, the Hebrew's great here. Let the waters swarm with swarming things and let the air be filled with flying things. Let the flying things fly, let the swarming things swarm. So in day two, God separated the waters from the sky. Now he fills both and bestows on them a blessing, a blessing to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And don't forget verse 21 I know you, what is this great sea creature? Interesting that Moses put this sea creature in the creation um, of things on day five. You see, this great sea creature that he names is the primary adversary to the god Baal in Canaan. And God is just saying, like, I created Leviathan. I made him. He's no threat to me. He's a threat to the Canaanites. He's no threat to me. I created him. And it was good. Just think about that. God created the sea creatures, and it was good. All right, day six. I know we want to talk a lot about day six, but we have several more sermons coming on that. Um, so on day six, God creates all the animals. He gives us three kinds, livestock, uh, creeping things, and beasts. And it was so. And in a separate act of creation, God creates man. What can we learn from this? Why is this important? Well, number one, we're not with the animals. Man is not considered an animal in the creation account. Man was created separately than the animals. Um, I want to say more about that, but we're going to have several sermons about the image of God in man, man made male and female, um, so I can't go there yet today. So, reasons why I believe in six 24-hour days. So now we've gone through some of the details. So I'm going to give you several reasons why I hold to the six 24-hour days. Um, first, it's the most straightforward reading of the text. If you just read it, that's what it sounds like. And there's a, there's a childlike faith in that. Say, this is what it says. I'm going to read it that way. Second, the text tells me in verse 5 what a day is. There was evening and there was morning one day. Third, there are other places in Scripture which specifically say God created the whole world, the heavens and the earth, in six days. We looked at it a little bit last week. Exodus 20, verse 11. In the Ten Commandments, explaining the Sabbath. This is for in six days, God made the heavens and the earth and all, that it, all that's in them. So the Bible plainly says it in other places. Fourth, Moses could have used other language here. Yes, in this first period of time, God did this. In the second period of time, God did this. In these long periods of time. But God, God doesn't say it that way. He says, in the day. Now, some excellent commentators, which I don't agree with, um, 
still acknowledge this fact that day seems really clear in the account. This is from uh, Gordon Winham in the Word Biblical Commentary. He says, There can be little doubt that here, day, has its basic sense of a 24-hour period. The mention of morning and evening, the enumeration of the days, the divine rest on the seventh show, that a week of divine activity is being described here. Now, Wenham doesn't land where I land on the age of the universe and other things. And yet, he just acknowledges that's just what day means here. It's not clear that it means an age. And finally, another a quote from another commentator who is a six-day young earth creationist. He says this, As a repetition that follows immediately on the heels of the command, it underscores the fact that the directive is instantly fulfilled and completed. So God said, let there be light, and what happened? There was light. God said, let there be light, and there was light. So these theories which argue that God spoke the commands of creation at this point, but that they were fulfilled or not fulfilled until subsequent ages, do great injustice to the text. So if God says, let there be light, and then over a million years the sun is formed, that's just not the way the text reads. God said, let there be light, and there was light. The power of God's word is at work. Now, there are challenges. So those are some of my reasons for holding a 24-hour view. There are some challenges to the 24-hour uh, literal day view. Um, and I'll, I'll list a few of them and give some brief responses. But at a very fundamental level, each of those objections can be answered by the fact that Genesis presents a week of miracles. Like at a really basic level. Like, what's your answer to this, John? This was miraculous. That's my answer. Now, I know that's not very satisfying because we want to know, we want to understand. But it is a legitimate answer if we serve a God that created the universe. I mean, if you can get past the four words of the Bible, you should be okay. In the beginning, God. Then it would be okay that God did miracles through creation. So first, first objection, questions about light existing before the sun is created. I know that it feels odd to think about a 24-hour day and separating day from night before there was a sun, but we've already noticed that, that in the end, God is going to be their light. And so it's not that far-fetched to me to think that in the beginning of the cosmos, God himself was the light. Another question would be about the age of the universe or other findings of science. And this is huge. This is, this is a biggie. And it's hard to wrap our minds around. But it's not hard for God to accomplish. So the fact that we have a hard time wrapping our mind around it, don't import that difficulty to God. So our basic answer, my basic answer, is that God created the earth and the cosmos with the appearance of age. So you say, well, John, how is it that we can see light from galaxies that are a million light years away? How is it that we can see the light from that galaxy, which is a million light years away? Now, as a scientist, I have lots of questions about that question. It makes me really think. But as a theologian, I say, God made the galaxy and the light at the same time. Like, I know it's not completely satisfying, But it's not outside of God's miraculous work. Now, I realize this presents challenges. How do we study these things? Does God want us to study his works? And yes, he does. But if God presents the creation of the universe as a miraculous event, we should expect to encounter things we can't explain and don't understand Finally, there are some objections to this literary pattern. So if, if you say, well, I think, John, the literary pattern is what matters, and so it's not really trying to answer anything about what actually happened. It's just trying to tell us why. Why did God create us? Why are we here? What should we do? Um, I just find it more compelling to think that God gave us the why in the structure, but also the beauty that he created it that way. Calvin um, Calvin 
uh, kind of takes this view. Ligon Duncan, in uh, his essay in the Genesis debate, says this, Calvin emphatically holds to the 24-hour view and vehemently rejects any suggestion that the structure of the creation narrative is merely a didactic device. For Calvin, God not only accommodated himself to his people in the way he explained his creative work, he actually accommodated himself in the way he performed his creative work. So you hear that God didn't just give us a seven-day week so that we would practice Sabbath in the way he described it. He actually did the work in seven days so that we would practice the Sabbath. So he's taking the, the didactic teaching moment and saying, no, God actually did it this way. Well, point three, very short. God's good creation. Remember, it's very good. All that God has done is very good. God's good creation has as a focal point mankind. Now, this is very different from the scientific culture in which we live. It's listening to NPR this week. The greatest threat to mankind is global warming. Now, I can think of a lot of things that feel to me more of a threat than, than man and global warming. But our culture is saying man is the problem, Mother Earth is the solution. But that's not God's creation account. God's creation account is I've created all this and I've made it good so that I can commune with you on earth. Did you notice which creation days received the emphasis? Days three and day six, where God created the land, created the vegetation, and then on day six created animal life and created man. Those were by far received more attention in the narrative. So perhaps it's an unexpected surprise to you, an unexpected truth in Genesis that, the, that one of the focal points would be God's preparing this for man, for mankind. He's creating all of this in his larger story of redemption so that he can commune with you and with me. In six days, God takes what is wild and uninhabitable creation of verse 2 and systematically makes it good and habitable for man. The worldviews surrounding Israel believed that the created order was in opposition to the creator. That darkness was battling the light. That the mighty sea creatures were fighting against Baal. That fate was determined by the stars. But not so in the Genesis account. God created all. He created the darkness. He created Leviathan. He created the sun, the moon, and the stars. God rules over all. God is not threatened by his creation. And this is why the psalmist says things like, For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. One of our difficulties with reading the creation account is that we have only experienced a fallen creation. We've only encountered by our experience death and sin and corruption, thorns and thistles. It's likely that even today you're experiencing some of those thorns and thistles of the fall. But those are not threats to God's rulership. And they will be overcome in the end by the redemption in Jesus Christ. We live in a creation that waits. It is waiting with eager longing for the new heavens and the new earth. A creation that's subjected to futility, that will itself be set free from bondage to corruption and that is currently groaning. That's the creation we experience. But the creation in Genesis 1 was very good. So we must not read our experiences back into chapters 1 and 2. So finally, what should we know from Genesis 1? God created all things by his word. God created all things in six days. And God created all of this so that we might enjoy communion with him and fulfill his commands. So we should worship God for what he has done from 2 Corinthians, it says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown 
in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We began today, open the eyes of our heart, Mike said in his prayer. God says, let, the same God that said, let there be light is the one who reveals to us, the one who is light, our Savior, Jesus Christ. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Friend, let us see God's creation and give him glory. Let's stand and pray. Creator God, the one who rules over all, the one who is not challenged or threatened by his creation, be glorified, be magnified. Lord, we pray that you would be magnified in how we look at nature. That when we see the glory and the beauty, the detail, the magnificence of all that you've done, that our eyes would look through that to the one who created them. And Lord, when we look and we see the fallenness, the brokenness, the hardship, the tragedy, Lord, help us to remember that you are the God who will redeem and will bring your glory to pass. You are the God who restores what is broken. You are the God who heals. You are the God who purchased through your son's blood our own redemption. And we give you glory in Jesus' name. Amen.